Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, we have Austin Craig. Austin is a producer at Mission and a marketer who first became interested in Bitcoin in 2011. In 2013, Austin and his wife Becky launched Life on Bitcoin, a documentary film that followed their first 100 days as newlyweds using only Bitcoin for all expenses. More recently, Austin was head of marketing at Mainframe, a startup in the blockchain space that hosted their initial coin offering in 2018, launching the company and a new cryptocurrency to power their technology. On this episode, Chad and Austin discuss loopholes, or as Austin describes it, tricks hiding in plain sight, how to spot these loopholes and how to capitalize on these opportunities. everyone welcome back to another episode of mission daily and on today's episode we have a special guest with a very special message austin thanks for joining us thanks for having me chad so i saw your tweet on twitter i think it was like two weeks ago and i immediately responded and you were talking a little bit about loopholes and i know some about your background and as i looked into you and kind of the subject that you're discussing it's something that i've been thinking about for a while and it's something that i think is incredibly valuable for all of our listeners to hear about. So uh, yeah, if you don't mind, could you just introduce yourself and maybe just give us a backstory of how you discovered this topic and why you care about it? Yeah, happy to. I've been working in video production mostly for the past 10 years, but in all of that time, I've been really interested in new platforms, uh, new technologies, and the opportunities that they present, things that couldn't have been accomplished before. So about 10 years ago, I got involved in internet video and YouTube advertising uh, well before the vast majority of people were involved, just because it was a new system and it looked really interesting. I got involved there with a startup called Orbrush. We were selling a tongue cleaner and we, we used that system to its full capacity well before other people had and built this multi-million dollar business. I also got really interested in crowdfunding and cryptocurrency. Any other new technology or system that emerges, I'm absolutely convinced there are new possibilities, new opportunities created there. And so I'm always interested to dive into the details and find out what can be done that couldn't be done before. And for anybody that's listening to, just from a a purely selfish and self-interested standpoint, anytime there's a new piece of uh, ad tech or a marketplace, there's going to be opportunity there. In a sense, it's opening up a new frontier. So if you think, oh, I'm not interested in tech or I'm not interested in ad networks, this doesn't apply to just those examples. Correct me if I'm wrong, Austin, but it applies to just about everything, right? Yeah, certainly every human-made system. But I think even in nature, there are opportunities that present themselves where something is needed in one area and it's abundant in another. In the examples that I tweeted about that you'd seen, a lot of them were game shows or sweepstakes or lotteries, that kind of thing. These are purely artificial systems that somebody came up with the rules for and somebody else looked at those rules and understood them much better than even the people who created them. There are always these opportunities and sometimes you can use that to win a sweepstakes, but also you can use that to start a new business, invent a new system, invent a new opportunity for yourself. And and that's what's always fascinated me about these is, is I feel like that's how you can get ahead in life is pay close attention to the details and look for those openings. And when you're looking for those openings, what seems to always work uh, that never goes out of style is having a novel approach or a product or an idea that can proliferate on those systems. So the example you mentioned earlier about 
a tongue cleaner, it can sound trivial at first, but this is really the key to stopping bad breath, right? It was a novel invention and people love, it's the Aura Brush. And for five years, I was the spokesman for this brand. I was on camera using it and talking to people about it. And it's a fine product. I still, to this day, highly recommend it. But what people really noticed us for was our, our use of web video. We jumped into YouTube and we're creating not just commercials, but just really engaging content that had nothing directly to do with selling the product. It was just entertaining people and engaging them and building an audience there before anybody else. And by building that audience, we earned their attention so that when we wanted to tell them about a product, they were ready to listen. Was that your first time getting on camera and kind of like jumping into the online fray? Or had, did you have some experience before? I had a little bit of experience on camera because I'd studied broadcast journalism at school. But as you can imagine, it was quite a bit different from, hello and welcome to the evening news. I'm Austin Craig. Here's some <laughs> stories for the day. And telling jokes about bad breath on the internet. It started out with me acting and there was acting writing, acting writing directing, and then even producing. And it really opened my eyes to the potential of new systems. We, we built this multi-million dollar business off of silly web videos. Uh, and I wouldn't have thought that possible when we started, but I was working with some really brilliant people who helped me see the potential and helped build that business. I've worked on crowdfunding campaigns. I've worked in the cryptocurrency space. When I first heard about Bitcoin, I was fascinated for exactly the same reasons. This is a new system that creates entirely new dynamics and nobody has a head start. Any person who hears about this right now can jump in, figure it out and become the winner in this game. So when you first heard about Bitcoin, did you read the white paper? Did you hear friends talking about it? And how did you, because I think what many listeners are thinking is, uh, that sounds awesome, but how do I go about filtering and deciding on what opportunities are worth my time? So maybe if you could explain a little bit about your thought process and how you filter different opportunities. Cryptocurrency was interesting because, you know, money is, we kind of assume that it's this ancient, eternal fact of the universe, but money was invented. And for a long time, certainly for our lifetimes, it's seemingly been about the same. Nothing's really changed. You have cash, you have a credit card, you have a bank account. That's generally how it works in a developed country. Bitcoin presented entirely new dynamics. You could do business with somebody, you could trade money with somebody, big or small, from fractions of a penny to many millions of dollars, virtually instantly with almost no third party interaction. You know, if you're transferring money anywhere in the world, somebody's gonna take a cut of that. Cryptocurrency made it possible to do business and exchange with people you've never heard of, have never met, to share with them or send money or send value in a way that cannot be reversed, cannot be interfered with, uh, and can't really be censored. These were new rules. That's why these systems I think are so fascinating. New rules create new opportunities. Uh, and especially with something as basic and fundamental to our lives as currency, money, transfer of value. I knew that there must be something there worth exploring. Uh, even if I'm not a cryptographer or an economist or any of those technical experts that you would think normally should be involved in something like this. I'm a filmmaker, so I ended up making a film about Bitcoin. Do you find that making films and creating content is the best way to teach yourself a concept? For me, absolutely. It, <laughs> I took that as an opportunity to talk to all the experts. If I just wanted to chat with them and have lunch, well, maybe their time is limited. But if I'm making a film on the topic, and in fact, we had kind of an interesting hook on this thing. We made the film five years ago when I was getting married and me and my then fiance and soon to be wife decided that we were going to live the first 
three months of our post-honeymoon married life using only Bitcoin for all expenses. So our gas, rent, groceries, insurance, travel, entertainment, we'd have to figure out how to pay it in Bitcoin. And that's an insane lifestyle experiment. It, it was barely possible and it was very difficult, but that was, that was the idea. And that hook gave us an excuse to talk to experts, skeptics, regulators, cryptographers, anybody involved would say, yeah, I'll, I'll sit down with you for 20 minutes and chat about that. And I think that having a shared topic or pursuit or project with your spouse is one of the loopholes that we're kind of talking about, right? Because I know in my own personal experience, for those of you who don't know, Steph, my wife is a co-founder of the business, and we always find new things about each other through shared projects. So could you share a little bit about how you and your now wife go about doing that? Yeah, it was. this was especially evident when we did our, our film. We called it Life on Bitcoin. But during those three months, as you can imagine, it was difficult to get basic things done. Buying groceries was this big challenge. We had to find somebody who would accept payment in cryptocurrency. Because those challenges seemed just constant, they were in front of us every day. There were times when I was super beat down, just really not excited about talking to somebody else about Bitcoin for the 20th time that day, for the 50th day in a row. And when I felt totally downtrodden, my wife was right there to help pick me up and you know, lift my chin up and tell me it was gonna be okay. And, and we hadn't really worked on something or built something together before we got married. We, we dated, we loved each other, but we hadn't worked together like this. And so what we discovered is that when the other was really beaten down and ready to give up, the other was ready to pick us up. So I did that for her, she did that for me, and that was just a thing that we discovered that we never would have realized if we hadn't faced these common challenges that we were sharing. Same here, and I think that's so interesting because there's a certain energy you can find beyond the point of exhaustion, right? So when your spouse steps up after you're completely tapped out, frustrated, wanting to call it quits, and they say, no, 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 we're, we're super close, and then they pick the ball up and carry it a little bit further, I think it really expands your conception of what's possible. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's not really any way to do something beyond yourself, something superhuman, besides using technology and teamwork, right? That's yes. the only way you're going to accomplish more than you alone can do. Use better technology and coordinate with other people. And somebody like a spouse who you know so well, who you care about, who they care about you, that can be an incredible teammate to accomplish something great. Completely agree. Like there's TV, you can always watch TV, you can always do the traditional things later, but it's, uh, especially when you're young, there's, it's like a rare opportunity to dive in. When you finished the film, what did you do with it? Where did you publish it? And yeah, what was the next project or what was the next uh, loophole that you found? Uh, we published the film on Amazon. Actually, getting distribution on that was was super challenging because a lot of the people that I was working with, I had I had a lot to learn about teamwork, not just with my wife, but with the production company and, and the distribution partners. First time filmmaker, but we did get it distributed on Amazon and it's available there for rent. And I'm looking at distribution channels right now that are payable in cryptocurrency because it seems only appropriate that if this is a movie about living on Bitcoin, it should be payable in Bitcoin. After that, I moved on to a few different things. I did a film festival of mobile made films. These are films shot in many cases, edited on your smartphone, your mobile device for much the same reason. This was a new platform, a new tool that created new possibilities. And if you wanna tell compelling stories, guess what? There may have been a time when you needed a studio and a budget and a bunch of people behind you, but that is not how it is today. If you wanna tell a compelling story, you probably have the tools in your pocket to do it. In fact, major filmmakers like Steven Soderbergh just released his film on Netflix that was filmed entirely on an iPhone. 
There's a fascinating behind the scenes shot of him filming this feature film, this Netflix distributed movie. And he's just got his cell phone out. He's just got an iPhone out and he's getting a dolly shot on a wheelchair as somebody backs him out to open up the scene. It opens up the possibilities of what he can do. He doesn't need a scrillion dollars behind him. He doesn't need the approval of this studio. He just has a story he wants to tell. And by relying on these simple tools, he can do it his own way. I think the cool part about that is once you know that example and probably once you see that image or the video, how you view a phone is never going to be the same again, right? There's a a newfound frontier of opportunities that seeing somebody use it like that has opened up, which is really, really exciting. It sounds like you're really into film, obviously. When did that love first start or what catalyzed that for you? Oh, I I loved movies growing up, but I think I probably really got into film in college. I had a class called French and Italian Cinema that I took with some friends and it was really just for fun. But man, we had an excellent instructor and he showed films to us that I never would have picked out on my own, right? French new wave films that had a lot to offer, but weren't exactly playing at the local cineplex. And he opened up my eyes to how they were sharing messages in ways that weren't obvious and how they were constructing an image and how they were exploring a character and an idea in non-obvious ways. And that's always been really interesting to me. Film is like a cathedral. We go there, we are silent, we we sit as an audience and and partake of this message presented in larger than life manner on, on the big screen. And even if you're just watching at home, even if you're watching in your home theater, even on your cell phone, You know, it's not as good an experience, but still, I think film is one of the most incredible ways to communicate with people in a persuasive fashion, in a way that teaches. We tell stories to teach each other. It's the native language of human beings, stories. And uh, that's how we understand the world. And I think film does that better than any other medium I've found. I completely agree. I think in the age of machine learning and AI, it's very tempting to think that media is not yet personalized. But I think really great films, they speak at a level where each individual viewer is drawing their own conclusions, right? Because we're each in our own universe in a sense. And film allows personalization basically, or really good storytelling. Uh, Are there any favorite examples you have from film of just like, this is the perfect example of a story. So you're familiar with contact contact a book written by Carl Sagan and a film directed by Robert Zemeckis starring Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey. This came out years ago. I was a teenager when I saw it. And it just gripped me. It's funny how certain people just don't like it at all. And then other people, it's one of their favorite movies. And it's definitely one of my favorite movies and stories. I I ended up reading the book and loving the book as well. And I gave a book report in front of my senior English class. And I actually got really choked up in front of my entire class because I thought this was so deep and meaningful and powerful. This interplay between faith and science that the, the main character has to struggle with. I know that I absolutely perplexed my teacher and my classmates. They had no idea why I was choked up about this book report, an alien encounter. But man, it was such a powerful message and so beautifully told. It's always stayed with me. What about that story was so exciting? Were you already reading science fiction before or did it give you hope for the future? Because I know in my own personal case, it made me feel very inspired because it presented a positive first contact type scenario. And so often we get inundated with all these negative dystopian messages that we forget good things do happen. I mean, it's pretty rare, right? There are so many world ending apocalyptic sci-fi movies and films and books. I've been reading science fiction for as long as I can remember. 
But this portrayal, what, what stuck out to me was that here was somebody who was so, so staunchly in the position that unless it can be proved factually, measured, metered, it doesn't exist. Nothing is true unless it can be verified with hard evidence. And then she has an experience that she can't explain. And all she has left is her own personal experience to share and what she learned from that. And, and I was raised in a very religious household and that message resonated with me deeply that there's the world around us and it can be proven and measured and demonstrated and it is real. But there are things that maybe can't be proven. You know, I, can you prove that you love somebody? Can you demonstrate and measure what's important to you and what's valuable to you? Maybe not as directly. And this main character learned that in a, in a very relatable way. You know, I've never been to an alien planet, but it was relatable in the sense that she experienced this thing and she couldn't prove it to anybody else. She couldn't demonstrate them and lay evidence down on the table, but it, it was real all the same. And I think that's such a great reminder too, because we often think that uh, science is the institution that is figuring everything out, but really it's the one that is telling the first approved version of the story from a lone individual or a lone team that's discovering something or experiencing something for the first time. I don't know if I'm getting the story exactly right, but I'm pretty sure that Rene Descartes, in a sense, founded modern science. He did so when he had a vision from an angel and he was a young soldier at the time. He had a vision and the angel said to him, the conquest of matter is to be achieved through measurement and number or something along those lines, which then he took and went on to found the modern institution of science and materialism. You know, in almost every example of great discovery, it starts in the mind of a single person. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that in science and entrepreneurship, it's always a team effort? There's definitely value and incredible insight that emerges out of a team effort or group insight or massive data, but that can't be divorced from the insight of the individual, the, the power and capacity of the individual to process something and discover new pieces. I mean, that's what, that's what I was originally tweeting about that we connected over. These loopholes were discovered by individual people. Yes, masses, massive audiences were witness to the same thing, but it was individuals who realized that if you arrange the pieces just so, there's incredible potential here that nobody else realizes. And that's a great segue. So let's talk a little bit more about some modern day loopholes that you've discovered or that you're fascinated with right now. This tweet storm that you saw me put out there was about people who discover these loopholes in pretty straightforward systems. For instance, if you've ever seen the film Punch Drunk Love, there's a plot element in there where a guy buys these pudding cups because there's a promotion where you can earn frequent flyer miles by buying the pudding cups. Well, this is based on a real story. There was a guy in 1999 named David Phillips who realized that a healthy choice foods promotion, the value they were giving away in flyer miles was way, way more than the, the cost of these pudding cups. And so he went around to all the, the stores in his hometown and he bought thousands of these pudding cups. And because it was in 1999, he told them that it was because of Y2K. He was just preparing for the apocalypse. <laughs> he got volunteers from the local Salvation Army to help him cut off the UPC codes and then send those in to Healthy Choice Foods. And he ended up accumulating 1.25 million frequent flyer miles. Just because nobody who set up the system, nobody who set up that program realized how it could be used. He understood it way better than they did. And there are numerous examples of this. There's somebody who almost destroyed The Price is Right, this beloved game show. He realized that the items they were putting on the show 
would recur. They weren't random items and they weren't all new. If you go back and you binge watch episodes, you realize that they're using the same fridge over and over and over and the price doesn't change. So there were people who memorized the prices of these items. And there was one elderly couple who made flashcards, who made spreadsheets, who memorized the prices and went on the show and had the stroke of luck to get called up and he got the price exactly right. Not once, but twice. First with the first award that was offered and second with the showcase showdown at the end of the show. And if you watch the clip, you can tell that Drew Carey, the host, is not happy because he is convinced <laughs> this man is cheating. He understood the system better than anybody else. Yeah, and it's easy for us to think uh, or basically be very harsh on ourselves and think, oh, it's a form of cheating. It's this, it's that. In actuality, it's really just a pushback against being presented with so many systems that are like casinos from birth, basically, where the house always wins no matter what. And in a healthy economy, in a well-functioning society, you have to have instances where everybody can win. You have to have fun games where many different people can win, where it's not just the house winning all the time. How do you view loopholes as being, do you view them as being good for society or do you view them as simple anecdotes? I, I think about them as a reality, right? They can be good or bad, depending on where you sit in relation to that loophole. I'm sure that as Drew Carey on the host of that show, he wasn't really thrilled that this guy discovered a loophole, but it was fantastic for the guy playing it. And they don't just exist in casinos or game shows or sweepstakes. There are other examples that are much more entrepreneurial. If you think back to when the Hyperlapse app came out, this was an app that came out on the iPhone. You know, I, I'm somebody who did the Pocket Film Fest and I'm a film buff. I, I was super interested in this. The innovation of that app is not really that it speeds up video, but that it stabilizes video better than anything that did before it. And the potential to do that had been sitting there on the device for years. It uses the accelerometer and gyroscope sensors to stabilize the image. Those sensors had been there for multiple years before somebody realized, I can use those to stabilize this footage better than anything else that's come before. It's the exact same kind of attention to detail and arranging the pieces just so and, and realizing that this new system has possibilities that haven't been explored yet. Outside of that example, are there any from uh, maybe the world of finance or economics that you like to cite? I know off the top of my head, one of my favorites is Kyle Boss, who famously, he's a hedge fund manager, and he discovered that the metal in nickels was worth more than five cents a piece. So he bought, I don't even know how many pallets of nickels, but it was a, it was a huge amount. And he made out quite well. Uh, the Federal Reserve was not too happy, but that was a, a great arbitrage example. Are there any favorite examples you have from the world of finance? Yeah, you're using the exact right word, arbitrage. I was talking to a friend about this, and he mentioned an old foreign exchange trick that may not be possible anymore. There's a window of opportunity on all of these. They eventually get closed, but new systems are spun up all the time and new opportunities appear. So you're never going to run out if you keep your eyes open. But at one point, foreign exchange traders who would trade currencies, say the Korean won to the US dollar, realized that if good news was announced for the Korean won at night, say maybe, maybe even bad news for the American dollar, if it was announced at night in Korea, then most of the traders were asleep and you could get into that opportunity well before somebody else woke up, read the news and realized they needed to move some money around. So there was simple arbitrage just by virtue of when information came out and when people were asleep. Now, this is years, probably decades ago. We live in a 24 hour economy now and that kind of opportunity 
has closed up, just like many of these game shows changed their rules to address people finding the loopholes. But new ones are always appearing, and that's, that's kind of what fascinates about me about these stories. I want to find the common threads. How are people identifying these opportunities? What qualities are they exhibiting to be able to extract them? And then how can I apply that to my life? Not so that I can win a game show necessarily, but so that I can find opportunities that other people are missing and that they're hiding in plain sight. And I think what's very exciting about this too is almost all of these examples are created or recognized or discovered by outsiders, people who don't have the traditional set of skills. They're not entrenched in the industry. There are people who, in many cases, had been completely disregarded and couldn't even get an entry-level job in the industry that they find the loopholes in. Has that been your experience when you've been studying these examples as well? Or are there examples where you know, entrenched industry people discover these as well. No, I'm, I, I'm observing the exact same thing you are, Chad. It's, it's people who you would not expect to be game changers. In, in the examples that I was tweeting earlier about these game shows and casinos, one was a couple uh, on the East Coast who found a way to use their, their state lottery. Their state lottery had rules just a little different from other state lotteries, and they realized that when it got over $5 million, if you bought enough tickets, the odds actually would tip in your favor. You were probably going to win money if you bought enough tickets at a certain point. And so they played over 10 years and earned something like $26 million. This was a couple that had long since retired. They were in their 80s. They had owned a convenience store. This was not a Wall Street hedge fund trader. These were people who just paid close attention to the fine print and realized there was something there. Another story was somebody who was a school math teacher. They, they did the math. They paid attention to the details, but they're not insiders like you're saying. Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm astonished that I haven't seen Nassim Taleb tweeting out more of these examples. This sounds uh, like right up his alley. This is really, really cool. And it's really fun, too, especially in some of the examples with the lottery winners, where traditionally, if a group of people or a person gets a lot of unearned wealth, they're not able to keep it if they if they get it all at once. But I'm guessing that in these examples, because there was so much hard work and thoughtfulness put into discovering the loophole, a lot of these people were able to keep some of the wealth that they had discovered, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there are examples of people who were not allowed to keep them, even though they discovered what was truly a loophole. Um, sometimes the powers that be decide to change the, the rules ex post facto, especially with the government. Don't mess with the IRS. They don't like what you yes. Yes, let's just have that caveat in uh, huge caps at the beginning of this episode. We do not condone any of these, and uh, especially not on your taxes. Not the not the place to get creative. Yeah, I can cite very specific examples that did not end well for the clever <laughs> people who found those loopholes, because they were right. They found a loophole, but if the IRS doesn't care. They'll still send you to prison. In the private economy, if you're working with private individuals and private companies, public companies, they'll honor their word. They will they will stick to the rules, even though they realize later that those rules may have not have been as in their favor as they thought they were. And in many cases, too, this is what leads to job offers. And many of the people who work and consult with federal agencies first started out as hackers uh, who had found loopholes, whether it's the classic catch me if you can example, the guy who was the star of that, the basis for the story. He soon after his exploits got a job with the federal government. And I think that this leads to, you know, finding new teams and new tribes and new opportunities that are can be way beyond just the initial score, for lack of a, a better word. Yeah. The initial score shows that you're somebody who does have their eyes open, who can look at new systems with a novel approach and find opportunities. 
So when you're showing the world that you can do those things, even with one big win, people are going to pay attention. And the reality is more of those opportunities will show themselves because you'll have people rallying around you to help find them. So I think now the best thing to do is to segue into the lightning round where we like to ask our guests a series of rapid fire questions just to see, you know, what type of information are you consuming? Yeah. So if you're ready, let's jump into it. So Austin, what's the best nonfiction book and what's the best fiction book that you've read over the last year? Ooh, the best nonfiction book. Yeah. I just read Rand Fishkin's book, uh, Lost and Founder. And he has some fantastic insights in there about his experience starting Moz, growing Moz. And he's very transparent about the mistakes that he makes. So, so often people write books about the success of this company or the success I've had in my career. And those are great. There are great lessons to learn there, but there are invaluable lessons that you can only learn when somebody is honest about the mistakes and failures that they have in their past. And he was, he was fantastic about that. And a lot of it was very counterintuitive. A lot of it was contrary to the standard Silicon Valley narrative. Yeah, I think he bucked that quite a bit and he bought out some of his investors or he basically got off the venture capital treadmill, I think. Yeah, he, he's very transparent about the pros and cons of getting VC investment and what an acquisition could really mean for you and the pros and cons of bootstrapping and not taking capital. He, he takes a very counter narrative to the minimum viable product gospel of Silicon Valley and the lean startup methodology. It's so commonly accepted that you, if you're not embarrassed by your first shipped version, you're not shipping soon enough. Who was it? Reed Hoffman that said that. Rand Fishkin says like, listen, that can be true, but also the opposite can be true. It really just depends on your circumstances. You don't want to release something that's half-baked and it's going to ruin their, your goodwill and reputation. And he gave good examples of that and how they released too early and not developed enough uh, products at moz.com. So it was, it was interesting to see him take such a counter narrative to these things that have become just absolutely accepted tropes. So what about fiction? Have you read any fiction over the last year or is there a uh, single fiction book that you recommend more than any other? Uh, I'm trying to read more fiction, honestly, because for the longest time, for years, I was just reading these nonfiction books, business books, and eventually that starts to weigh on you. Uh, at some point, you need a human story to grasp onto. It, it helps you, you know, expand and grow and even relax. It wasn't within the last year, but I read Flowers for Algernon a couple years ago, and man, that book really stuck with me. It's about uh, this person who is severely mentally handicapped and becomes the subject of a test to expand their mental capacity, and they go from being a severely mentally handicapped, I believe, janitor to being clearly the most brilliant person on earth, speaking many different languages, advancing multiple sciences, and it's a diary of their progression along the way. And it was poignant in, in how it showed that brilliance is not all there is to life. It's an important thing to, to seek after and to expand your capacities, but this person went from incapable in almost anything to capable of doing whatever they wanted and sometimes that still wasn't enough. Sometimes being capable, king of the earth, didn't grant them happiness or peace that they wanted. Very cool. I'd heard the title a couple of times, but hadn't jumped into it yet. I think I'm going to do that now. What about apps or how you're using your phone? How do you use your phone? And are there any apps on your home screen that you love? A lot of them you're going to be very familiar with. I love Audible. I use it often. I also use my local library, as low-tech as that seems. There's a, an online offering in an app called Libby and Overdrive that let me access my local library's audiobook offering for free. 
And I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't take advantage of this sooner. I've spent a lot of money on Audible. Some of those same titles are available for free. I was a big, big fan of Inbox by Google, but that's going away and a lot of those features have been baked into the standard Gmail app now. So I'm, I'm transitioning over to that. Waze for navigation. All the Uber drivers and Lyft drivers I talk to recommend Waze over Google Maps or Apple Maps. It has a lot more information and data, which seems strange to me because it's owned by Google. You would think they'd integrate that with Google Maps, but I'm not sure it is. It's still a separate team. The Waze team is um, a siloed team. And uh, it's an incredible product too, by the way. Real-time information sharing is always welcomed when you're out and about. So what about at work? When you're at work, are there any subscription software products or any other tools that you're finding invaluable? We use Slack all the time at work. I work at a crypto startup called Mainframe. We, we make this protocol for decentralized applications that, that are, it's kind of building the new internet that gives users a lot more control than standard web architecture. Increasingly, we face uh, challenges with mega corporations and, and government interference with what you're doing online. Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica scandal kind of bring this to light. But that kind of thing is happening more and more all the time. We're building an alternate infrastructure that puts power back in the user's hands. So at work, we use Slack all the time, which is kind of funny because this is a centralized service. We probably do this obsolete ourselves and build a, a fantastic decentralized messaging platform. For the time being, Slack is definitely a tool we use all the time. And we use Zoom, just like you and I are using right now for video and voice calls. We have a distributed team, people in the UK and Brazil and the US, and we end up using Zoom for our team meetings all the time. Outside of work, what are you doing for fun? And do you have anything you would consider to be a hobby or do you just explore things that you're interested in? Uh, my wife tells me I need to, to have not more hobbies, but I need to spend more time with them because I usually end up working too much or reading too much or, or just wasting time. You know, if I'm staring at my phone, there's not really a guarantee that I'm doing something productive. I may just be mindlessly scrolling. I'm way too subject to that. But when I do get out, and I, I am absolutely intent on doing this more as things warm up where I live, I, I've actually taken up metal detecting. It's just swinging this metal detector methodically over some old ground and finding old coins. And it's surprisingly fun. You know, It's a little treasure that's really not worth very much, but the thrill of finding it really sticks with you. Austin, if you had to leave our listeners with one piece of advice on finding loopholes or maybe a call to action for those who think that they might have found something, what would you say to them? The studies that I've looked at, the examples that I've explored, it's somebody who looked at a problem long enough and looked at the details and did the math, frankly. A lot of these people just did the math where nobody else had, and they realized that there was a proven, clear opportunity in, in facts and figures. So something catches your eye, even if you're just curious about it, you think there might be something there. Spend a little bit of time with it. Try to run some numbers. Try to do a little math and see if there might be something there. Because intuition can, can grab your attention, but I think you've got to demonstrate the real opportunity by experimenting, playing with it. And if you do that enough with new systems, you will definitely find something. Austin, thank you so much for joining us. This has been awesome. And to everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, 
And if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.